Cadavers in the brunch bar, TikTok, and cheesy dancing. What's your plan A to set up for success? I'm Amit Power. If you're not getting your education on YouTube or Insta, you could at least be creating some delicious edible ultrasound phantoms. I'm Jeff Gadsden, and this is Block It Like It's Hot. Hey, it's Jeff and Ahmed here. This is part two of a three-part series on education and teaching in regional anesthesia. If you haven't listened to part one or episode seven, you may want to start with that. All right, cool. On with the episode. Okay, cool. Listen, I thought we'd change tack now. So let's talk about some of the, the different ways we can deliver the teaching. Is there still a role for textbooks? Because um, my concern about some of these textbooks is whilst um, the anatomy is not going to change, possibly by the time you've written a chapter and quoted some references there in there, by the time it comes out, it's, out of, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not current or it's not representing the current literature. Do we need to do, use textbooks anymore? I know it's it's funny, right? I I don't I can't remember the last time I saw a trainee pull out a textbook and like whew, blow the dust off of it. Yeah. You're right. As someone who who has written a textbook, I get the numbers from the publisher, and it's all e-learning. Like we're actually not selling wow. any physical books anymore, but those same books are being consumed electronically, which is so. There's I think there is some value still. Okay. Okay, because I've got a shelf full of regional anesthesia textbooks that I had from my fellowship and when I was sitting the, the EDRA exam, the EZRA regional anesthesia diploma. They haven't come off my bookshelf since the exam, if I'm being completely honest, which I'm embarrassed about. <laughs> but I have used, I'll tell you what I have used, I've used review articles. So Azra every now and then do these great big, big papers where they put all of the techniques together. So we, you and I were both co-authors on the abdominal wall one, I think, Yeah. Um, that Keijin led and uh, with John McDonnell. So those those review articles are brilliant. I know there was an upper extremity and a lower extremity one. So, you know, can review articles replace textbooks and keeping up to date? What do you think? Totally, I think so. That and that one you you just referenced has been cited so many times. I think because it yeah. just was so comprehensive and Keijin did such a great job with that. But uh, yeah, it's good. It's good foundational knowledge, and we've got a little Dropbox folder of key articles that all our fellows should read and those review articles are our main part of that but i think i tell you man it's youtube that what you think that's the future totally no no question even even in terms of our our teaching like i i told you we'll discuss the case the night before and say okay i used to say i'm going to email you a couple of articles to read for tomorrow now i'll just say okay you have the link? Yeah. Watch the YouTube video and we'll talk about it tomorrow. Well, I mean, it's it's difficult not to talk about uh, YouTube and then not talk about the Duke rap uh, Blocktober videos. They are, It's I, I said it to you before when we did our initial interview for Azra News, it's like a, it's like a modern textbook. You've got everything in there and, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you how wonderful they are again because I've told you that many times, but they're brilliant. So actually... <laughs> oh, oh, go, go on, go on. Okay, well, they're amazing. <laughs> I'm totally joking. So I will often say to my to my fellows, um, right, tomorrow we're going to be doing this, or maybe we've finished a list together. And I said, like, let's refresh that. Why don't you go on to the Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine YouTube channel, look at some of Jeff's videos, and, and search up the parasternal and costal plane blocks, or search up how his approach to knee surgery is. Or I'll say, you know what, you're with me tomorrow, and I'm going to be doing my approach to thoracic paravertebral blocks. Why don't you watch my video? Because I've got a video that shows you exactly how I'm going to do it. So actually... Yeah 
being able to do that is amazing so so we know some so we both talked about our own youtube youtube channel so you've got the duke regional season and pain medicine channel you've got mine and i've got to mention kijin chins because that is like a another real live living textbook of region anesthesia any other ones that you want to reference yeah no and i, I just want to make it clear to the listeners i wasn't saying that it, it just just about like our own videos no. but because there are <laughs> i love the uh your your channel is amazing and you have a way of delivering the information that is you know your style and just so easy to watch and, and learn from so that's that's incredible what we probably should be doing is saying here watch these five different interscaling videos from Correct. these five different and then you'll get pearls from each one that not everyone um, is covering so they're complimentary for sure because people are different type of learners right so some people don't want so much of the anatomy they want to know just how to generate the image and then they're okay and other people are like well listen i want the whole thing i want as much as i can but the key is people want it in short pieces of information that people don't necessarily have the time to sit there and watch 45 minutes um so i know some of my initial lectures i put on the slightly longer people aren't going to watch them for the full 45 minutes they want five minutes totally yeah vicente roquez from uh from spain it has amazing oh, videos yeah. too um i know manoj karmakar uh, from hong kong has has started a channel i think last year and has got some amazing stuff on there too there's lots and lots of resources out there but it's interesting your point about what is the sweet spot for duration like i mean my own attention span has <laughs> has dropped yes uh in the 21st century right like five minutes seems good can you get the information across in one minute or less that is really interesting because there are a couple of social media channels that are geared for short attention span people like myself and we, we both know so instagram's one and i've kind of had a little bit of a, of a dabble in instagram if you were to look at my channel it's mainly selfies um <laughs> or food pictures but um there are a few people that have utilized this particular medium really well for education region anesthesia and the one person that comes to mind straight away is blocker girl right so we both know uh sarah um, uh, amaral yeah sarah sarah's amazing that that channel yeah. I, I i and i told her this recently the ability to do what she does in such a small consumable space i'm not a real insta person so i don't know what the format's called but you know you can sort of swipe across and see her different slides slash videos and yes. yeah i'm like that is exactly how i'd want to teach that block and you've done it in i think i consumed that in 30 seconds yeah yeah so within each post for example you can flick through the different slides different yeah. pictures that she's got there and you've got information she also puts these little stories up with quizzes the only thing from my point of view is that i'm not great at portuguese because not all of it's in english and some of the stuff is in portuguese <laughs> although you can you can work out what it's referring to but that's a great resource and what about tiktok man have you verged or you know got yourself onto tiktok Oh, yeah. Like a lot of people during COVID, I watched my fair share of uh, talking dog videos and learned some cheesy dances. But uh, no, not not recently. I think the key with TikTok is you've got to be quite focused um, with what you use it for. But I've got to say, um, Melody Herman, uh, who is from your neck of the woods, I believe. She's from North Carolina. Yeah, Charlotte. Um, she has absolutely nailed the regional anesthesia TikTok market. So in it, she does she does some comical things, and we've done some transatlantic collaborations, which are more about fun. But she's also done some incredible 
educational pearls in like 90 seconds. Yeah. So within that 90 seconds, she'll have an ultrasound image, she'll have an anatomical slide, and she'll have a picture of pro placement or a video of pro placement. And you can gain a lot of information in 90 seconds. Now, if you ask her how long it takes to make those things, it she'll, you know it takes her a while. Even though it's 90 seconds worth of video, it's probably taken her a good few hours to put together. But there are some great resources there. So totally. Yeah. Don't discard TikTok uh, and Instagram just for, for, for selfies. There is, there's another rule yeah. here. Just moving on. So we talked a bit about social media. I want to work out how useful are scanning workshops at conferences or courses? How can somebody attend a course or a conference like that and get the maximum involvement out of it? Because you know people will pay money when they attend a conference to go to a course. How can we use them to the best possible way? Again, I think it's a combination of getting the information across the didactic stuff. Here's the anatomy. Here's the image you're supposed to get when your probe's in the right place. And then the hands-on coaching. So I've taught her to lots and lots of workshops and, and they've evolved over time. And they used to be like, you know, you'd spend half a day just in the classroom learning about the basics and, you know, half an hour lectures on interscaling and then a half an hour lecture on superclavicular and that sort of thing. It just, mm. it just gets tiring. Right. So I think the ones that I've been involved in curricular development with, I've tried to minimize that portion and, and also offer some pre-work. So again, same thing, watch the video and then come to the course and we'll spend your valuable time with our expert faculty who can then put their hand on the probe with you, show you that's the motion you're going to make to get that view. Um, you know, it's a bit like, uh, do you have driver's ed Driver's education, yeah, 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 yeah. In the UK, yeah. So there's a point when you you learn about this, what a stop sign looks like and what a yield sign looks like in the textbook, but you just had to get out there and and kind of yeah. do it, even though you might, you're certainly by no means an expert. There's a value to to just like jumping in there. I remember my, I, I don't know what your experience is like, but driver's ed, we had this guy, <laughs> this guy, with the practical portion. I grew up in this small town, so there's this one guy who taught the course, and he had this rock. He was he was actually a drummer in a rock band and he had a car to match so you can just imagine what this car looked like yeah he was a nut he I remember like you did your first little bit and then uh, i think lesson two he's like all right man we're gonna go on the freeway so we're kind of getting up to the on-ramp to this freeway and he's like floor it floor it go 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 and i and, and <laughs> i'm like what are you are you serious and, and he leans over and gets art right in my face and i said floor the pedal and so i think it uh it influenced my driving style enough that um it probably explains why I've had to do community service for oh, no. some speeding tickets. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, I got off track there. So, okay, well, well I'll tell, tell you the best scanning workshops I've been to were one of them was Nysora uh, inspired. Uh, and that gave us some idea from for some of the early Elsora conferences we did, uh, workshops we did. In fact, you flew over to the UK to do it that way. Because one of the dangers at scanning conferences or scanning workshops at conferences is the faculty hold the probe for too long. Or they do a live demo at the station, they're eating into delegate time. Totally. So one of the best demonstrations I saw and was inspired by Nysora was prior to every workstation at the front of the hall or the room, the one faculty member will demonstrate what they need to do when they go to their respective stations and what what images to see and then when they everyone broke off into their stations the delegates held the probe straight away and i think that made a big difference in terms of um, utilizing that time yeah totally we tell we tell our instructors don't hold the probe as much as you possibly can absolutely let them get their hands dirty uh, and then help them if you need to but again getting back to that sort of you should be able to talk someone through something uh, with minimal hands-on as a teacher. So uh, let me ask you a question. What do you, th- 
What's your thought on the value of a cadaver workshop? So I think this is extremely important and extremely useful. And in fact, if I think back to my time as a regional fellow, when I was the first regional fellow at Guys and St. Thomas's. The OG. One of the most useful things, and actually I didn't even do a workshop at this stage. I did a, I was given an afternoon in the dissection room at Guys Hospital, which took me back many years to when I was a medical student. Right. And they got some, they got some, um, some specimens out for me. And I was able to sit and look at them. They gave me textbooks. I didn't have a demonstrator. They gave me some textbooks and some laminated anatomy kind of things. And they said, right, just, you know, go for it. And so right. I was able to go through and, and appreciate. And that's the first time I really remembered or appreciated what the femoral nerve looked like at the groin. And I was expecting to see this kind of triangular shaped structure sitting next to the femoral artery and I suddenly saw it's this thing that was arborized right it's kind of little things coming out so actually it suddenly made me appreciate such a good word not as good as symmetrization symmetrization is a symmetrization yeah but arborized Arborized. yeah I like that but but it was the first time I actually appreciated uh, what it looked like so so that was one that was one component and then of course one of the best experiences I had in terms of teaching and education was when we were fortunate enough to have access to cadavers that were unfixed and we were able to scan and see structures in real life and needle them in real life and know that you weren't going to cause damage and actually we intentionally tried we were allowed to intentionally try to perform intraneural injections to understand what it would look like so in short I think cadaveric workshops are absolutely key to part of developing that experience and, and, and knowledge and teaching and regional anesthesia. I'm guessing you feel similar. Well, I, I think I have mixed I think I have mixed feelings on it. I think that your point about understanding anatomy is critical. And I, I had the same experience. You know, I did anatomy as a student and then practiced regional anesthesia for several years. And then going back to see a cadaver again was completely eye-opening it's like okay yeah no i'm paying attention to this part way more now and i i yeah. get the relationship of the brachial plane or whatever but i want it's such a resource intensive endeavor to bring I a see. cadaver to a place and all the all that goes into that uh, and, and then there's a cost to that as well setting something up like that if you're not dissecting if you're just putting in probe on and sticking a needle yep. in i wonder how much more valuable that is compared to say a high fidelity gel trainer or something like that i don't know right so so i said so now i understand okay now i understand what you're talking about because in theory you can understand a lot of the 3d physical relationships of structures without having a cadaver right so without having a prosected specimen you could look at an app and there are some medical schools in the uk that now do not have dissection as part of their medical curriculum they do it all virtually so that I understand. And I guess what if you think about what I was talking about, I was talking about to one component was seeing the anatomy, but that very much is dependent upon the quality of the dissection. The other component is needling. Yeah. But as you say, if you can get a phantom that is as near as damn it to the, to the, to the real thing or as close as you can get, then actually you don't have to worry about all of the disclosures, disclaimers and, and consent forms that you need to sign and all of the special equipment uh, that you need to do if you were to, to take these cadavers into a hotel where you're having a conference or something. And actually, as a conference organizer, <laughs> it's a whole different thing, right? Oh, forget about the fact if you're like just some other random guest at the hotel and you see this <laughs> cadaver rolling by. That's just 
awkward. Do they do that at hotels? I'm trying to think. We've always we've only ever done these. Oh, at, for uh, sure they've had. Uh, oh they no, occur at hotels. Really? Yeah, yeah. We've only ever done this in dissection rooms before. Don't mind me. I'm just pushing a cadaver through the. <laughs> The brunch bar. Oh my. Okay. So so listen. So I think it depends which side you're looking at it from. If you're looking at it, if if <laughs> organising it was no big deal and you didn't have the hassle or the stress, then I think there's something quite useful about doing something on real tissue. But actually, if we're being pragmatic and looking at what we have in the future, then actually maybe high fidelity phantoms as near as damn it, that's probably sufficient, right? And, and actually, that's something you can have in a hospital, in your regional anesthesia training room. I mean, how good is a meat or a tofu model compared to that? I mean, I, uh, in terms of anatomical fidelity, not great, but I, I think a meat model is a really, really good surrogate for sticking a needle in so if let's say you had the cadaver as a dissection experience and saying oh that's the super scapular nerve now yes. i understand how that comes around and off the superior trunk and then that that's extremely valuable but in terms of needling i'm a little less impressed with the value of yeah. cadavers and i think i think a, a good meat model like we had a guy in new york daquan zoo who, who would make these awesome meat models. he'd take a pork shoulder or pork butt and uh, put a beef tendon inside and it looked and felt like you were actually doing a nerve block so i think that's good for generic stuff but it would be cool if you could have something that was specific to the block you're looking at i've got to give one shout out we had a fellow a long time ago called kate clocker and kate was a a, you know she was a great fellow she uh, had a quite an interesting imagination so she decided to make some phantoms out of jello or we would say jelly in the uk and candy shoelaces and bits of pasta so she actually recreated <laughs> an edible phantom uh for supraclavicular for femoral so she spent a lot of time you know basically creating like a lab in her kitchen coming out with a perfect oh concentration God. of jelly that sounds great i'm just had an idea the great yep. british bake-off regional anesthesia edition who can come up with the best edible dessert that is also scannable and oh my god we're doing this that would be amazing that would be amazing okay i don't know if i've got the skills i might have to recruit kate who's now a consultant around the corner but i'll see if i can get her involved <laughs> so okay so we both agree that the phantoms have a role here potentially I, I think so yeah so we i've said this before but there's a, a company called valkyrie that makes mm-hmm. these high fidelity ones that look you know all the structures are there so you can you can practice you can inject on them uh, I think there's a lot of value to using that as opposed to just a, a block of gel. Block of gel yeah. is fine. It, it helps you with that finding your needle skill, but then you quickly plateau. And I think you need something more realistic. Well, you know, I, I'm still remembering the thing that blew my mind when you were telling us in the uh, Ga- uh, the Gadsden's Gadgets and Powers paraphernalia episode about this fake probe that you can just go into thin air on meat and it generates the ultrasound image. And that, I think, has a role, as do the, yeah. the virtual needle trainers where you can actually scan a real person and then stick a pretend needle into them. So the yeah. other thing I saw on Twitter recently, Garrett Barry and Mark Leonard on Twitter both showed some incredible 3D printed brachial plexus uh, anatomical models. Now, I think that is amazing to be able to have that at your disposal. Um, so, you know, maybe you haven't got your iPad with you that day and you just can have a look and see the, the appreciation. So that ties into that knowledge of anatomy. Yeah. So you're saying to somebody, you're going to do a block here. These are the bits you need to think about. Have you got your, your hands on any of those um, those 3D anatomical models? So we haven't. We have a skeleton uh, in our yeah, block yeah. area that we sometimes 
pull out and does a little dance and they can point out yeah. x y and z but um i honestly have to get more up to speed on 3d printing this this kind of stuff yeah i need it'd be great to get hold of that now tell me what about simulation is that something you've done we haven't formally embraced simulation for regional anesthesia is this something that you guys do we do actually so i have to give some a shout out here to amanda kumar who's one of my colleagues and has mm. a real interest in simulation and she has developed a course both for our core trainees, but also our fellows where they go and spend an afternoon or a, a whole day in, in the sim lab. So it looks like an operating room and there's a, a mannequin there that can do all the things, very high fidelity so that the monitors are on, the monitors can change and there's a, a, you know, a voice telling you instructions and she'll take them through scenarios like last or you know, you've done a block and now there's a pneumothorax or counseling someone who's had a nerve injury over the phone. Like, what do you tell them? Yeah. It's really, it's really, really valuable. I think because it, those are things that you may not encounter in your training, but have to know how to deal with it. The stress of doing it in a evaluative scenario where someone's watching you through a one-way glass, I think imprints on your mind and helps retention. Well, actually, no, that's very true. And having said that we don't use simulation formally, that's not entirely true because actually uh, one of my previous fellows, Liana Zuko, hey, Zuko, uh, Zuko, who is actually originally Canadian. Right. So she was tasked with the role of introducing our new prep stop block strategy to minimize um, wrong-sided nerve blocks uh, so she was tasked with integrating that locally and one of the ways she did that was you know we had lectures at our clinical governance meetings but then she went round uh, she had a mannequin and she, she got all the team there and we actually went through the process of adopting this new prep stop block process to minimizing the side of wrong sided blocks so she did use simulation in that format and actually people found it a lot easier because rather than just seeing a, a dry piece of paper printed out or a poster you can't quite understand how a process will work in real time so i can see yeah we, we have used simulation not for the last or pneumothorax but we have used it for, for wrong sided blocks so that's useful nice yeah that's great but listen should we take a break here and talk about um and have our mug competition what do you reckon because we're getting on for time here yeah, yeah, let's do this. Okay, so to win a mug, here's the question that you must answer. In episode three, Amit says he performed his first ever awake surgery using paresthesia. Mm-hmm. But what was the block he performed? So if you think back or go back and re-listen to episode three, you'll have a chance at winning the mug. To be in with a chance of winning, you got to post us your answer via direct message to our Twitter account at blockit underscore hot underscore pod. Or the Instagram block it like it's hot, all underscores, or email us at block it like it's hot podcast at gmail.com. And we'll put all the correct answers in a hat and we'll pick a winner. Absolutely. I can't even remember what it was. So good luck with that one. <laughs> now, we talked before about um, artificial intelligence tools and some of the equipment that's out there. We've also talked about how important it is to know some of the anatomy beforehand and how important it is to get the information across at courses. Where do you see artificial intelligence tools have a role? And and is there a danger if we become too reliant upon them and they're not uh, universally available? So if we're talking about the software that can overlay yes. anatomical structures onto the ultrasound image, yeah, that's the, I think that's a really good tool, especially for novices. So yeah. I think as you get more proficient at, at that pattern recognition, which is one of the core skills, right? When you put the probe on the neck or the thigh... What is that structure? What is that structure? Until you have seen the 24 different possible variations that the human body can throw at you of that structure, because they all look a little bit different. Yeah. Having that AI coaching or crutch 
is I, I think I mean I think there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of how does that accelerate your learning curve, yes, and and you know time to proficiency. I'm a fan. So am I. My only concern is at the moment, of course, um, you've got you've got to buy those tools separately. So I think ultimately, once they become integrated into the machines that we use, it won't be that much of a big deal. I think there's a niche point in the market here now where you know there there are products out there that people can purchase, and that's going to be the the biggest restriction to adoption is the fact that departments have to buy it once it's integral to the machines which i, th- I think will be the ultimate wish that would be then i th- then i think it's great because actually as long as you're you're using you're telling the machine what to look for i you pick the right block uh, then i think it has a role and uh, and i think you know i would i would definitely embrace that the other thing I want to focus on is, so I'm lucky in that I'm in charge of, but not solely responsible for, a group of, of senior trainees who are regional fellows. And one of the things that I do in my own time is give them dedicated small session teaching where we will pick areas, you know, we'll do an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours sometimes and say, right, in this hour and a half, we're going to cover from, you know, the interscaling to infraclavicular. And that's all we do. We focus on that. We look at the anatomy and then I scan and then I get them to scan. Is that the ideal model? Do you think that's the best way to get people through? Because I, I can give them a lot of my time and attention. It's quite labor intensive, but that's a great way, I think, to impart those crucial bits of information. Do you think that's useful or do you think we're better off teaching in practice in clinical scenarios whilst you're actually doing the blocks? No, I think I think there's a lot of value to what you do. And we do the same thing. We'll have a dedicated scanning session for, you know, above the clavicle, below the clavicle, mm-hmm. thoracic, you know, different different things throughout the course of the fellowship. What I think it does is gives you a stress-free time and place for yeah. the trainees to ask questions. I think it's intimidating sometimes when you're in front of a patient and you're, yeah. you know, you're tr- probably trying to impress your boss and you're, you're, you got the view and you're just like, let's, okay, I got it. Let's just do it and get it over with. And I've, I've checked that one off. Having the time to say, but what about this? Or, you know, why do we do it this way? Or what is that structure yeah. in a safe, easy environment is, I think is hugely valuable. You know, well, <laughs> it's always a you know, pull names out of the hat to see who's the one that takes a shirt off that day yes. uh, and be the, <laughs> be the model. <laughs> Why, why does every name in the hat say Jeff? I don't know. Um. <laughs> so, so you're very generous. I haven't dedicated my body yet because, you know, I've, I've had to hold this probe. But actually, we've had a few of the fellows who have, have volunteered themselves to be models. And then when it comes around to scanning, they've put the probe in their own groin and done the scanning. The groin always seems to be the area we struggle with with getting somebody for. The rest of the parts <laughs> of the body, we can, we can manage. Wait, same. We, we've, we've actually, I've actually paid people. I've gotten put it out on yeah. Craigslist. Uh, wanted someone to come to the hospital and take their pants off. I'll pay you twenty bucks, and I, you would be, you'd be, shocked. you might be shocked at the number of positive responses we get to that ad. Well, I can imagine. I've I've got to tell you one story about this, which has just come to mind. So I remember we got one of our anaesthetic assistants. We you know we we we'd said oh we we need some models for this particular part. I used to run a sauna club after hours for for all comers. And we needed somebody for the groin station. One of the anaesthetic assistants said, "Listen, I'm I'm happy to do it." So um, it's a little bit of a warning sign when they're a little too enthusiastic about that, right? Like it's like maybe I need maybe. I need you to take your pants off and show us your. Gr- I'm there. I'm there for yeah. you, pal. <laughs> but wait for this. So he gets he gets set up for scanning, and I said, "Look, how do you feel if we scan, um, you know, both sides at the same time to maximise?" He's like, "I came prepared for it." I was oh, like, God. "What are you talking about?" So he had shaved half of his pubic hair on one side and the other side left as 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 nature intended. And I said, "Why have you done this?" He said, "I thought I'd have a beginner's 
and an advanced science. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so, so um, yeah, that we and that that was yeah. That uh, is that, that was, amazing. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be in the podcast. Yeah. I think there needs to be a manual out there for uh, for how to properly prepare models. Yeah, abs- there probably should be actually. Coming on to, to to different elements of teaching, so we've covered a lot of things: anatomy, image generation, AI. What we haven't talked about is should we be teaching all of our trainees residents to use ultrasound nerve uh, stimulation and injection pressure monitoring because these are all tools that are out there how essential is it that we teach them all of those things it's a good question i mean we sort of touched on this in another episode and i think we're, we're planning to do an episode on prevention of nerve injury at some point mm-hmm. so that i think we'll get more into detail there but i think i again, see my role as an educator as I'm going to expose you to as much as I possibly can yeah. so that you can then make a decision as to where this fits into your practice, especially for a fellow who's who I know is going to be dedicating their career to, in large part, to regional anesthesia. I, I yes. need them to understand the theoretical basis, but also how to use these technologies. And they may not agree with me as to the value of it in block A, B, or C, but at least they've got that exposure. I, I think I totally understand that because what you're saying is as an educator, it's your responsibility to furnish them with as much information and as knowledge as possible and say, look, these are the options available to you. You don't have to adopt them all. This is how I use it in my practice. But I think one of the beauties, and I always say to the fellows that we have, that one of the beauties is of working with more than one individual is you get to see lots of different approaches to doing certain techniques. And as much as I want to say my way is the best way, I also appreciate there are other people that do other things that they might find useful. So we have a responsibility to show them what's out there. Yeah, totally agree. And give them a whole host of things they can learn from, and then they decide what the, what they want to do afterwards. Exactly. And I'll say, like, here's what nerve stimulation offers you, yeah. and you can choose to use it. And if you don't, you're dead to me, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Now, listen, this is something that I feel quite strongly about, uh, and that is self-injection i'm not talking about the type of self-injection that you practice where you inject to yourself or all of the blocks i'm talking about <laughs> which officially we are not recommending okay yeah we are definitely not recommending that i'm talking about um doing the injection of local anesthetic yourself so effectively holding the knee, the syringe and doing the injection how important is that do you think because i understand um from speaking to a lot of my north american colleagues that they're so used to working with experienced block nurses that help them with with the delivery of regional anesthesia that nine times out of ten they'll show up they'll have everything ready they'll do all the checks and they'll do the block and the, the block nurses do the injection do you think we should be teaching people to ultimately achieve that self-directed injection that's an interesting question. So are you talking about the trainee holding the probe, holding the needle, and also managing yes. the injection like a Jedi yes. grip type thing? Jedi being one of the one of the, yeah. the many grips, yeah. I think it's a, definitely a role for trainees to understand what the syringe and the compliance and all those things feel like. So yes. it's practically ergonomically sometimes a bit challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't, we haven't done a whole lot. I'll, I'll usually pull it out for the fellows or for, for a senior trainee. I said, Hey, you want to see a, you want to see a cool trick? You're gonna do this whole block yourself, hold the syringe this way, hold the needle this way. And they're like, Whoa, that is, that's kind of cool. But so I haven't done that too, too much as a routine, but what I will do is if there's another trainee observing Henrietta doing the block. I'll say, yep. pass a syringe over to them and say, here, you inject, you aspirate, okay. inject. And so you get a feel for what this feels like. So that's also a way of involving them uh, in the process as well. So they're getting an extra educational component. So, so, so I'm asking a very skewed question. And that is because actually I do 
probably um, 98% of my region anesthesia, I do the injection. And so the trainees don't get a chance at that stage to feel what it's like. They, they're watching me doing it. Or when they're doing the block, I tend to do the injection for them. And the re- there's one very simple reason. So I... Um, I always used to get somebody else to do the aspiration injection, as I'm sure the way that you do. But I found that depending upon which hospital I was working at, which department I was working at, and how experienced that anesthetic assistant was, I wasn't. I didn't have consistent assistance. I think it, it, that's one way of saying it. So I suddenly found myself in some situations where I say aspirate and inject. Somebody would aspirate, and then they'd inject lots of air, and there were certain things that weren't I couldn't control for. And then I watched um, a very skilled anesthetist called Tony Allen. He did a live demo, a course that I taught on as well, and he did the most elegant, self-directed ankle block injection. I was absolutely blown away by watching it. Well, number on his skills but also the way that he was able to do the injection himself so I thought you know what I'm going to learn this and we made a El Sora YouTube video on the self-injection technique so I did the Allen technique Hmm. but when I started doing this it changed the dynamic of my block so I definitely reduced the volume of local anesthetic injected because I was looking on the screen I wasn't specifically looking at the number of mils or, or point or points of a mill that was injecting I was just looking for the spread I was like okay that's enough then I would advance and I could do real time so I was injecting as I was moving the needle tip so suddenly my ability to do that dynamic injection without having to say to somebody else stop aspirate inject it changed so from a personal point of view I found I, I was able to be a bit more in control but it's not a beginner technique. And I think uh, it would be wrong if we dedicated lots of time and effort in getting people to achieve competence in that as opposed to image generation, needle insertion, recognising the needle, all the rest of it. But I think it's a nice nice thing to, to achieve ultimately. And there are some people who will put the needle where they want, then let go of the needle yeah. and inject themselves. I That gives me the heebie-jeebies, but they, they, the people that do that are very happy doing it. But have you ever have you seen anyone do that? Do you do that? I've done it myself sometimes. It depends on the block and it depends on mm-hmm. the needle position relative to the target. If, yeah. if I feel like I'm going to, I can let go safely and it's going to stay in the same place. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm watching it the whole time. I, I have done it, but I think you're right. I think this is a these kind of techniques are the thing you teach your trainee when they're, you're running out of things to teach them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they've they've pretty much shown competency at all the things. Now, what can I teach? Uh, here, let me show you this cool trick. Absolutely, and then, of course there are tools as well. We we discussed it in the in the uh, in the gadgets episode. There are some some automated tools that can help you with that, and there may be a role for those in the future. Definitely robots. Yeah, quite. So now I wanted to ask you, uh, what was what was your robot? You had a sarcastic robot. I'm trying to remember <laughs> <laughs> the trash talking robots. What you want me to inject more, Jeff? <laughs> Is that what I sound like? Yeah, no, no. I don't know what that was. I don't even. That, I don't even know where that where that accent came from. It was just a nondescript accent. Now. I wanted to ask you a question because not about your specific practice, but it's about what do you do if you're teaching on a patient or even on an ultrasound course, and as you're scanning, you come across something that looks unusual or abnormal. Oh, what are our obligations as practitioners in a situation like that? This happens not infrequently. We do a little ultrasound tutorial for medical students uh, once uh-huh. a month, and uh, so I'll, I'll get them sitting around in a circle. It's circle time. They, uh, you know, pass the probe around. Okay, let's start with the neck and here. Like, well, look at that. That's your sternocleidomastoid. And then we'll go around. Once a year, 
or even more frequently, we'll get someone with some kind of thyroid nodule. That's the most mm. common abnormality we'll find. And I'll say, it's probably nothing, but that is not normal. So I would recommend you go see your doctor and figure out a way to investigate slash address that. I had one patient, or patient, I had one student. It ended up resulting in her getting surgery for it. Wow, really? Yeah, so had we not, like, you know, scanned her neck, who knows might yeah. have happened uh, ultimately, but she was fine. But I think we've got to be sensitive with how we, we, we broach those subjects, especially if there are other people involved. So, you know, I haven't had anything quite like that, but I have had a few situations where, where we've come across abnormalities and I've just spoken to the individual after and said, look, I don't, I'm not qualified to make a call on this, uh, to diagnose it. However, Correct. This yeah. is not something that I've seen before, and I definitely think you should get it checked out. It's just something I, I was, it occurred to me because it's happened before, and I was just wondering if you had any experience. It sounds like you do. Yeah, and your point about doing it discreetly is a good one. Um, yeah. it's, it's not like the kind of thing you want to go, oh my God, check this yeah. out. And now the other students are like, what is happening here? So yeah, <laughs> pull them aside afterwards and say, just, just so you know. The thing that people you do see a lot are lymph nodes, right? Especially when you're scanning the neck or the groin. So you can see lymph nodes quite a lot. And a lot of people don't know, um, number one, that they're normal, or B, they don't recognize what they are. So that's something that it's, again, worthwhile um, being aware of because lymph nodes are probably one of the commonest anatomical structures I see that we're not necessarily looking for. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, should all anesthetists be able to do regional anesthesia yes yeah for, for, firm yes i mean it's it's again getting back to that when i have trainees going out they, these aren't people that have done a fellowship but going out to get jobs they're interviewing they're coming back to me and saying here's what this job looks like and what they require of me more and more and more it's you know we started an eras program and we need someone that can lead this and do all the blocks or most of the blocks and that sort of thing but just you know it has been a core part of providing anesthetics since the 1880s yeah i mean i, I get it. it's it's so interesting because i i've referred back to this and maybe in our first episode i definitely remember when I was a novice SHO before ultrasound, pretty much everybody in that department, all of the consultants could do an interscaling brachial plexus block with nerve stimulation. Everybody could do it. Everyone yeah. could do ephemeral and everyone could do some kind of sciatic. But it seems that somewhere in this current era, we've lost our way and that's not the standard i don't know if everybody necessarily would have been happy to do a wake up a limb surgery for example but certainly everyone could do the blocks um and then it just took a bit of confidence to do more whereas now we seem to have got ourselves certainly in the uk we've got into a bit of a rut where that's not the standard and now the new curriculum will mean that everybody should be able to achieve competency at a certain level of regional anesthesia if we can deliver it there well, it's interesting. Like I work in a very, very specific place where we're quite siloed. And so if you're a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist at Duke, yes. you're doing hearts and lungs. Yes. Like that's, that's your Monday to Friday job. That's even your weekend job. Like you're not doing gynecologic cases. Yes. And, and same thing with like the OB anesthesiology team is mostly doing women's cases, et cetera, oh. et cetera. So I feel a little bit fortunate in that when I'm doing general OR call, I will get trauma and I will get craniotomies and I will get the odd thoracic case and that sort of thing. But what we're seeing is we've actually had, we have a very, a very robust and excellent cardiothoracic anesthesiology fellowship at Duke. And some of those trainees with their elective time will come across and, and do two weeks with us in the block area because they say, hey, I'm going to have a, a job where half my time is doing hearts, but I, yes. I'm going to be expected to do some regional 
not for the hearts, but for the legs and limbs and other stuff. So can you please refresh me as to how to do those blocks? I, I, I think it's I think it's really important no matter what your what your job looks like. Well, I think you're right. I mean, similarly, at Guy's and St. Thomas's, I'm very much um, siloed. So I tend to, I have a, a relatively fixed job plan where I know what I'm doing week to week. And most of the time it involves regional anesthesia. Um, and I've got other colleagues who are doing heart or pediatric anesthesia. But what we're noticing is there are elements of regional anesthesia that are sneaking into job plans where they wouldn't have before. So sometimes in the cath lab, they'll have a procedure um, where they're doing a mini thoracotomy. And actually, they say actually it would be really useful to have some regional anesthesia for these cases. And we've gone up and helped them do some 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 regional anesthesia. So actually, practitioners who may not have used regional anesthesia before are now coming across cases where there's a benefit. But also in some of the other hospitals I work at, so at the Cleveland Clinic London, even the cardiac on some days maybe there's no cardiac cases happening so they'll come out into the general floor and be doing non-cardiac cases and suddenly they're doing a foot and ankle list and these are experienced consultants and actually now they're having to to do a bit of regional anesthesia or they're doing lists where regional anesthesia is required so I think all anesthetists should be able to do a minimum set of regional anesthesia the question is what blocks are the minimum and is that a dynamic thing or is it a static thing does it change with time i guess it varies you know depending upon where you're working well you know i think what you're getting towards here is the the idea of the plan a blocks right so mm. the idea that sure they're the amit powers of the world that can do every block but what's the minimum yes that everyone should be able to do i i think that plan a blocks framework is pretty good i mean you got yeah. you got an up a couple upper limb blocks, a couple lower limb blocks, and then a truncal block that does a good job for midline abdominal stuff and a yeah. decent thoracic block. I don't know we could talk about ESP again, but yeah. So I th- I I do think that's that is a minimum, and I think we need to do a better job and of updating our minimum expectations mm-hmm. here in the U.S. at least to reflect contemporary practice and what that looks like and what the job expectations are. And another interesting question is, who should be doing the plan B, C, and D blocks? Yeah. So if you're, if I'm working in a small hospital, you know, not in a big academic center, do I need a department where everyone's just doing plan A? Or do I need one person that's a champion that can do the plan D blocks as well? It, it, it's, it's a very good question. And I don't know the answer. I think you probably need at least one person in the department that can do everything, but it depends on how big the department is. And certainly one of the problems I'm finding is that the more niche your, your skill set is, the more the more stress and more pressure you're putting upon yourself because then nobody else can do it. So ultimately, I think everybody needs to do plan A, but you need to gradually start building up the competency in people that can do BCD. Um, because if you're the only guy that can do it, when you're on annual leave, then nobody else is going to get an anterior QL block, for example. So I think we need to gradually increase that skill set of all of our practitioners. But to start off with, probably one or two. The best idea would be that some of your fellows stay at your own place, right? Because then you've taught them the stuff that you like and, and they can come and deliver it. But quite often they'll learn the skills and then go go forth and uh, out into the rest of the, the country or maybe in the rest of the world and spread the knowledge there. Yeah, I, I'm going to say something a bit might be a bit controversial here, which is... I like controversy. Let's go there. Uh, yeah, controversy. <laughs> I think in 2023, with the resources available to us and the types of instruction you can get either at a live course or on a YouTube channel, I think you can very quickly turn someone who's a plan A person into a plan D person. I don't know about you, but 98% of what I do all day with regional anesthesia, I learned after I graduated. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. So it's it's taking that baseline set of skills, 
how to do ultrasound, how to recognize patterns, and then applying them to each of the subsequent techniques that have been developed since. I don't think that's quite as controversial as I thought it was going to be, actually. But you know what? I, I think the key is to get everybody up to plan a... I mean, we're using that, that that descriptor, but to get everyone doing a minimum set first. Yeah. Once we've achieved that, then of course we can build on it. And I think there is, you know, the problem is... So I'm still teaching some of my experienced consultant colleagues will come and say, look, I haven't done this block for so long or, or, or I did it before the time of ultrasound. Can you teach with that? So sometimes I'm finding I'm teaching a senior consultant to do a technique uh, that they haven't done for a while. So it, it would be great if we could get everyone doing the type of blocks they need for their job plan. But you're right. Certainly... If you you know if you're qualified as a consultant, but maybe you weren't proficient in all of those blocks, I think we can get you there with the right time with the right resources. We can get everybody to do you know BCD potentially. Yeah, I think so. I, I think uh, once you've gotten that baseline competence, it's easy to translate to all the techniques. The last thing I wanted to ask was one of the things that triggered this episode was one of our previous fellows, the Chris, said to me as he finished his fellowship. He said, "I mean, I've been teaching other people now to do regional anesthesia," and he said, "I don't understand." how you remain so patient with me how is it that you were able to sit back with your hands off and let me do what i was doing you know how do you deal with somebody who's doing a block and they're not quite getting it how long do you leave them to, to to attempt to do a block before you take over and when must you take over and when can you, is it safe to take the hands off and I, you know i i thought this is not something i'd really could sum up in a minute and a lot of what we're talking about will kind of deal with elements of that but how, how would you answer that so i think that part of the way to mitigate that is to set the trainee up for success so ergonomics do the pre-education with whatever resources you want so they understand what the procedure looks like. Get them physically set up so that it's going to be an easy procedure. And that way you don't have to do nearly as much talking through, oh, you stop, you know, actually your probe's in the wrong orientation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I am also quite slow to take over someone's procedure. Yeah. You know, to me, I think my, my priorities are, number one, patient safety. Yes. Number two, patient comfort. Number three, trainee experience. And then somewhere way down the list is efficiency. Now, I, I do also care about efficiency, but mm -hmm. not at the expense of a trainee experience. I'll tell the surgeon, if you wanted to have a three-minute turnaround on your case, then I invite you to go practice somewhere else because this is a training center. You, yeah. I think you come to this place knowing that there's a certain amount of teaching that has to go on. And, and for that reason, I don't complain when your trainees take... 35 minutes to close a yeah, knee yeah i think i agree with that and actually i, I hope um the people i've spent time teaching and training will acknowledge that i take time and i don't rush them but i'll tell you what i have started doing just out of curiosity or just for interest is every now and then i'll start a timer and have it on the background just so at the end of the procedure <laughs> they know <laughs> that's cruel no but just just so they know how long it's taken clock's ticking buddy <laughs> But, but I won't necessarily give them a shout out of the time. But you know, sometimes it's useful for someone to know if it's taken them. You have thirty seconds to complete this block. You I have haven't ever done that. Twenty seconds to complete. That'd be funny. It, it would be good. But but I've literally set the timer and said, right, let's do the block. And at the end of it, I say, right, that took you, let's say for argument's sake, fifteen minutes. I say, okay, so that's not bad. But actually, wouldn't it be cool if you could achieve the same block with you know maybe a couple of minutes faster? So I'm not saying I I don't care about time. I'm not saying I'm very conscious about time. But I think we need to be aware of it because ultimately, especially if you're working in a non-block room environment, we need to be aware of that efficiency. And yeah, I grant I won't compromise experience, but I think we need to be aware of it. The time yeah, to no, no, to 
Totally, I, I agree. I think that my goal is to get them competent so that they can go out and be a really safe, effective, and also efficient blocker. Efficiency does count. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, that's it. I think uh, I think we've uh, we pretty much covered it, right? Yeah, this I've I've learned some stuff here today, so that that's um, that's awesome. As always, please hit us up if there's uh, things that you heard today or thought of that you want to, to dis- us to discuss or respond to. Uh, where can where can people find us? Well, they can find us at Twitter at at block it underscore hot underscore pod. They can also find us um, at YouTube uh, at block it like it's hot, no apostrophe. And as always on Insta, block it like it's hot, all underscores. And don't forget our hashtag, block it like it's hot, no apostrophes. It would be awesome if if you're enjoying this, if you want to hear more of this, if you could rate the podcast on your podcast platform. Of course, a good rating would be awesome. <laughs> if you're going to give us a bad rating, just, just don't bother. That helps. Uh, we understand the the podcast provider, um, get this out to, to more people. So absolutely. Now, before you go, you've heard it from our perspective, but what do a couple of old geezers know about education in 2023? Stay tuned for the third part of this series where we have not one, not two, but four trainees as guest stars telling us how they learn best and how their needs have changed compared to 10 years ago. We'll see you then. So till the next time, we hope you all block it like it's hot. hot.